Now, Scotland's talking. Call 0333-2020-401 and join the debate. A very good Sunday morning to you. I'm Ali Bally. This is Scotland Talking. On the programme today, is it time to get rid of Scotland's unique third verdict? A mother walked free from court this week, cleared of killing her baby girl. The nightmare did not end with her death, but continued with being accused of the most horrific crime possible, the murder of one's child, Maya Naya. From the outset... I have protested my innocence. But Sadia Ahmad wasn't found not guilty. The jury declared the case not proven. Some people think the verdict leaves an element of doubt. Should it just be guilty or not guilty? Also on the show, we're finding out about a very different way of trying to stop young people taking their own lives. The art of just sitting there listening to someone who's not a number and has to get out because the next appointment's coming in is the way forward. We've got the fascinating interview with Ron Williamson, who set up Mikey's line in the Highlands. And coming up after the Remembrance Day silence at 11 o'clock, it's a chance for you to put your calls to the other contender in the race to be the Scottish Labour leader, Richard Leonard. A radical platform for extending public ownership, uh, ending austerity and redistributing not just wealth but power. And I think that I'm the candidate who's best able to do that. The winner's being announced on Saturday. And who's running Edinburgh's Christmas celebrations this year? Ebenezer Scrooge. Tell me what you think of the City Council saying they're going to cut back on real Christmas trees and they're just going to decorate the ordinary trees one and instead put the lights on some ordinary trees. Looking for your calls on that. I'm Ali Bally. This is Scotland's Talking. Good morning. Scotland's Talking. The podcast. Now, on Wednesday, a mother walked free from court in Glasgow, having been acquitted of a charge of murdering her 14-month-old baby daughter. But the jury at the High Court in Glasgow didn't say that Sadia Ahmad was not guilty. Instead, they opted to use Scotland's unique and controversial third verdict, not proven. They took around an hour to reach that decision after sitting through a four-week trial. Various family members had accused her of suffocating her daughter in April last year, but the judge told the jury that all the evidence against her was circumstantial. There were no witnesses who came forward to say that they saw her do what she was accused of, and the conclusion the jury reached was that the prosecution hadn't proved that either. Her lawyer, Anwar's Amar Saan Anwar, apologies, uh, read a statement from her outside the court. The short time I have got to spend with my daughter Anaya will forever be the most cherished moments of my life. She passed away on the 20th of April last year at the age of just 14 months. The day she was born brought joy to my life which had become full of such suffering from the day I was married. No one can imagine the pain of a mother losing her baby. I will never see her smile again or be able to hold her in my arms. The nightmare did not end with her death, but but continued with being accused of the most horrific crime possible, the murder murder of one's child, Maya Naya. I loved her more than anything in this world and always will. From the outset, I have protested my innocence and I'm grateful to my legal team for all their hard work and fighting for the right verdict today. But my life is over. I died the day I lost my Anaya. Nothing will ever take that pain away. 
Now, we're not going to debate whether they reached the right decision or not. That is a matter for the courts and the courts alone. But do you think it's right that in the 21st century, a judge or a jury in Scotland should still have the option of using the not-proven verdict? Should it just be guilty or not guilty? Because not-proven doesn't definitely say that you didn't do it. It just says that we can't prove that you did it. So what are your thoughts? Is it fair? Scotland's Justice Secretary Michael Matheson recently asked a panel of experts to look at it over the next two years. One leading advocate, Derek Ogcusey, thinks not proven should stay. And in fact, he thinks it's guilty and not guilty, which should be abolished. And he joins us now. Derek, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. What, what is your train of thought do, down this one then, Derek, on saying that you know it should stay and the others should go? Well, um, one of the things you, you said there was um, that we just can't prove that the person did it. The, point, the whole point is that we have a high standard of proof in Scotland. It's proof beyond reasonable doubt. Now, there may be evidence that comes before a jury in a trial, and they think, well, that's good evidence. We, we like that evidence. That, that's bad for the accused. But then there's other evidence that comes from other witnesses or other sources. It might be forensic evidence. It might be CCTV. And the jury say, oh, but that, that evidence kind of doesn't quite square with that. We can't say it's beyond reasonable doubt. And that's the very high standard we have in Scots law. And every legal system has actually proof beyond reasonable doubt. And it's because the state can't deprive a citizen of his reputation or his rights um, without reaching that high standard. So, traditionally, what we've had in Scots law is proof beyond reasonable doubt, and the jury are entitled to say a person is guilty or not guilty or not proven. Not proven simply means they've not met that high standard, and therefore the presumption of innocence applies. So, by not proven, um, what you're saying is, uh, they are, just to emphasise this here, that what they're saying is um, it hasn't got to that uh, proven beyond doubt. But it does leave doubt, doesn't it? No, but I, I think that's a modern thing that's happened, is it leaving doubt. Right. Um, because I think it was only really in the 19th and 20th centuries that the, the concept that not proven uh, left, a, left a doubt as to the person's innocence or guilty. Not proven traditionally, I think, for, for about two or three centuries, was simply thought to mean there's evidence there, that there is a defect in the evidence, or that the evidence is evidence we're not happy with, and we therefore find the case uh, not proven. The historical origin of this was it was always guilty or not guilty. There was no special word used in the pre-16th century. Um, all sorts of different words were used by juries, and that's because indictments were very simple. Um, single sentence one on such and such a day, John Brown committed treason against her, the King's most excellent majesty. And, and that would be it. And the jury would then hear evidence and they'd pronounce the person convicted, convictus, or, or free, or innocent, or guilty, or lots of different words were used. Um, practice of how indictments were, were issued, that's the charge sheet, uh, changed in the 18th century and 17th century. Um, with lots of different details, lots of different paragraphs. And he did this, he went on, got swords, and gave these swords to these people and incited them to mob and riot. He went on to the lands of the king and did this and did that, and therefore committed treason. 
And each of these paragraphs the jury had to find proved or not proved. And that's how not proven came into it. It's because the way in which indictments, the detail of the indictments, was so detailed, the jury found this paragraph proved, that paragraph not proved, this paragraph proved, that paragraph not proved. And then it was for the judge at the end of the day to say what that amounted to in law was a crime committed or not. So that, that, that's really, it's really a historical accident. And we ended up with, with, with three verdicts by default. They'd always been guilty or not guilty or some such words. There's nothing special about the word guilty or not guilty. So is there still, uh, you're saying it's historical, Derek, but is there still a place for not proven in today's society then? Yes, I, I mean, I think sometimes juries, um, and this isn't what they're directed, by the way, the juries are directed, the two verdicts are exactly identical, they have identical effects. I've sometimes said to juries, if there is a difference, and this is quoting one of our great high court judges of the past, if there is a difference, it may be one of emphasis. And that's where a jury have heard evidence which points to suspicion of guilt, they're not entirely happy saying not guilty because that sounds like you're saying someone's innocent and then they say well we weren't there I'll give you a classic example of this a rape case where the jury have heard um, a woman come and say she was raped and the jury think she was very good she was very compelling in their evidence so we, we thought she came across quite authentically and then the accused goes in the witness box and he gives evidence and the jury say hold on a second he came across quite well too now, we weren't there, so we, giving a not, not guilty verdict to the, the accused might sound that we're, like we're saying she's a liar and, 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 and given a malicious allegation. So we'll find it not proven. It's not proven to the necessary standard. That's to say we didn't altogether accept the evidence in front of us. So what about the, the current guilty and not guilty verdicts as well, then? Uh, do you really feel they should be abolished? I really do, um, because it sounds like when you say someone's not guilty, um, you effectively, it sounds like you're saying they're innocent. And, of course, the jury weren't there. I, as defence counsel, I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. The judge wasn't there, and neither was the prosecutor. It all sounds like we know exactly what happened. But we don't. We can only go on the evidence. And it's given by people, sometimes given by contradictory forensic evidence, sometimes by ambiguous CCTV evidence. Then they may just say, well, look, we can't pronounce on this beyond reasonable doubt. The state's not entitled to take this citizen into custody for the rest of his life, for example, on this basis. So that, that's, that's why I think we should, we should have it. Not guilty would be in a, a, an obvious case. Um, or I think the public thinks of uh, uh, not guilty is innocent. Innocent, yeah. And not proven is something else. Now, I don't think that necessarily should be the case. I think the verdict should be... Have the crime, the prosecutor, have they proved this person is guilty of a crime? That's the state's job. We've all got the presumption of innocence. Have they proved it? If they've not proved it, we just say they've not proved it. We weren't there. We don't know what happened. But we're not happy with the evidence that's come forward from the prosecutor telling us this is what happened. And it's logical if you think of another thing. Juries have got the power in a murder case, for example, as in many other types of crime to choose a different uh, crime, not just a different verdict, a different crime. You can say, for example, in a murder case, well, we're satisfied that he's killed the person, but we're not satisfied that it was in circumstances of murder. We think it was something else, culpable homicide. 
So they can actually substitute, not, they're not just a three verdict, they can actually substitute one crime for another. The juries are directed on this by judges. So it falls into that kind of logical pattern of saying, what does the evidence come to? What does it amount to? That's what a trial by jury is about. Mm-hmm. It's about the evidence heard in the court. Was it effective? Was it sound? Are we left really in any doubt uh, about it? And we're not. One thing about reasonable doubt has to be said, though. Let's remember this. It's not beyond mathematical doubt. It's not, beyond, it's not absolute certainty. There are very few things in human affairs can be proved at mathematical certainty. And judges tell you that. It's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Not any old speculator. Mm-hmm. So that's the key I mentioned earlier that um, the Scotland's Justice Secretary, Michael Matheson, has recently asked a panel of experts to look it over uh, on the um, the not-proven verdict over the next two years. Um, do you see something positive come out of that? I mean, two years to a layman like me seems a long time. Is this the legal well, system, the slow legal system that we seem to, to see coming up now and again? Well, the review is not by the legal system, it's by um, government. Right. Um, so... Uh, it's experts and independent people that will be looking into it, and we wanted to take evidence and consider it carefully. You've got to watch out for the law of unintended consequences, the most important law in Scotland, perhaps. And that would be this. If you did away with not proven, it would, it would imply an, an unintended and an unwritten ambiguity in a not guilty verdict. Because there, suppose you have a not guilty verdict by a majority. Members of the public might think, well... He was actually, a lot of those jurors actually think he did it. You know, where, mm-hmm. whereas at the moment, you know, not guilty is not guilty. It's, it's pretty emphatic, isn't it, to say someone is not guilty. I, I think it's beyond human endeavour to say someone's not guilty unless you're actually there and, and saw the event itself and can accurately record it, just as it's beyond human endeavour to say someone is guilty. Because you don't know if all the witnesses came forward. You don't know if all the evidence was allowed in by the judge. So it's only the evidence in court the jury are pronouncing on, not what the reality might have been if all the jurors had been present at the scene of the crime and seen it for themselves. Mm. Interesting, Derek, and uh, it'll be interesting to follow this and see what happens over the next uh, few months. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you. Derek, thank you. Bye-bye now. Derek Og, QC, with his thoughts on not proven and his thoughts on guilty and not guilty as well. What do you think? Is it fair, this not proven uh, verdict? Give us a call. Let us know. 033-2020-401. You can also text. The text number is 61054. Start your message with Ali. And we're on Twitter. Hashtag Scotland's Talking. You're listening to Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talking. After 11 today, we'll be opening up the phone lines for you to put your questions to MSP Richard Leonard, who's the second candidate in the Scottish Labour elections, which uh, we'll know the result. I will know who the uh, next leader will be on Saturday. So he's going to take your calls after 11 today, and we will be observing the two-minute silence at 11 o'clock. Here's one that comes in regarding the not proven, and it says, morning, morning. Uh, about the verdict not proven. So if that's the case, they could in fact be guilty. So just because it's not proven, why should people be able to walk away with no further investigation? So I take it uh, that you're thinking that it should go on, but they've been to a court and they've been, you know, that's where it's been. Um, that's, that's what the court has said. 
you know, it's, it's, uh, I see what you're sort of saying, but how long does it go on for? Um, but thank you very much indeed for getting in touch. Uh, Tom's on the line. Tom, hello there. Hello. Hello. What's your point then, Tom? Uh, just the point is that I've been in that, that position of being caught, actually not guilty of any crimes, but made, made been forced to plead guilty to the crime that I never committed. And it, it actually slanders your, your whole name for the rest of your life. Uh, you've said you've been in court many times, so um, have you got a bit of a reputation then, Tom? No, no, it's, um, I haven't been in court. I've been, I've been in trouble with the police in 17 years. Right. And then last year I was arrested for historical charges, which I never did nothing, anything about. I wasn't guilty of anything. No, 17 years, no, no criminal record all of a sudden. And it stopped with that. Put in jail while I was remanded in custody for the four months because they couldn't. You know, it didn't tell me what it was for or anything. And then I'd end up to four charges of historical charges which was made up by, you know, someone that I knew. Uh-huh. Just to just to try and because I had I had basically I had something that she didn't want me to have. So to ruin my reputation. She made so all these allegations. Did it did it actually go to court, Tom? Yes, it went to court. It went through a trial and then halfway through the trial, my lawyer said the case is falling apart. It's going to get thrown out, but you need to plead guilty to this one. Well, if you get thrown out, it's going to also be thrown out. I've nothing to worry about. You know, it's, money's going to be cleared. But my lawyer decided that I was to plead guilty to one charge, and that bill all sorted out. And that one charge has actually left my life in pieces, if you know what I mean. I can't go into details because... No, 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 I don't want you to go into details. I understand that, but, I mean, I can hear the... The frustration from you as well. If what you're saying is correct, um, you know you 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 go through all of that, and um, it, it's left with people not quite sure what to believe. Then, despite what you yeah. tell them. Yes, sir. Uh, so, well, I tried. I told my lawyer, plead guilty, not guilty, all the way, not guilty, all the way to every charge because I wasn't guilty. For Seventeen years, I've not been in any trouble at all with the police, and all of a sudden, I still charges because I had something that my ex wasn't happy with. And she made up. But, but I, could you could you not have said, Tom? If you, I, I, I'm just asking us because I don't know the answer really, and I'm, I'm not suggesting you know one way or the other. But could you have not just said to your lawyer, "No, I am not pleading guilty to anything." Yes, I said that to her six times. I said she put me into a room six times, her my QC, and I said I was pleading not guilty all the way. The case was falling apart. Because my wife, my ex, had told that much lies. She was actually tripping herself up. That's yeah, yeah. That happens so often, doesn't it? When they start, anybody starts off by lying. You've got to remember your lies, and if you can't do that, you trip yourself up. So that's the two of them are actually standing in the court, and they're telling that much lies and tripping themselves up. My wife, two of them, said, "Well, the case is falling apart, but the Scottish, Scottish legal board think you're guilty of something, so you've got to be guilty <laughs> to something." No, that's that's not very nice because it doesn't really mean the thing in my face that I had. You know what I mean? I can't get the details of what it was because right. But but at the end of the day, you were left with the reputation obviously against you, and and you feel quite you've been done wrong by that. Yes, and I, I can't get back to court because my lawyer. I went back. I went to court. That's my lawyer to get back to court. Clear my name. She said, well, I can't. I can't um, represent you. And that was that. So the only thing I've done now is I've, I actually it's took me now almost eight months, or took about six months, seven months to get back and actually get an answer 
So what to actually do, how to clear my name, but it's going to take years now to clear my name up. Yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, meanwhile you're going going through it all, and I can hear the frustration there, Tom. Thank you very much indeed for uh, lifting the phone uh, and coming on. Hopefully it, it all gets worked out. One good thing about doing this programme is that we can bring you some bits of news that are happening in one part of the country that might be of help in other parts as well. Tell you more about that in a moment. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Scotland's Talking, Ian Gregor has uh, just sent uh, a, a little text in here regarding the not proven verdict. And he says, um, does not proven not mean that you can be brought back on the charge if further evidence appears? If not guilty, you cannot. I see. Right. I didn't know that. And I, I can't confirm it. I don't know. Uh, but maybe someone with the, the law knows a bit about the law can confirm that, Ian. But I see what you're saying there. Yeah. So if, if it was not proven, they could be brought back at uh, a later stage. Right. Thank you very much for that. Uh, listening to what that man had to say, that was Tom, what happened to him in code makes me wonder if the justice system needs a radical change. Um, well, you know, it's, uh, I'm sure it can always be, you know, we, we're talking there with an expert QC about um, the, the not proven verdict going back to the 16th century. Um, maybe there is time for uh, a look at it again as it's happening and a change. As I was saying before the break, the programme is called Scotland's Talking. And one of the things that is good that I can do is bring you stories that may be happening in one part of the country but can affect all of us. Now, take, for example, all the issues around mental health and suicide. There's an organisation called Mikey's Line, which was set up in the Highlands two years ago to help families affected by suicide. Now, this followed the deaths of Michael, Mikey Williamson, and his friend Martin Shaw, who died within days of each other. Now, what was special about it was that it was not a telephone helpline, but a text line. They call themselves a contact point for the lonely, an ear for the desperate and a source of direction for those without hope. And they take quite a different approach to the issue, as you'll hear. Our reporter, Brian Rutherford, has been talking to the founder, Ron Williamson. Well, my nephew was uh, found uh, dead on October the 5th, 2015. In his own bedroom, he'd taken his own life. Uh, why, we don't know. How, we know. Uh, whether it was deliberate or not, we don't know. Um, but uh, two young boys, both the same age, both friends, took their own lives that weekend. From that, um, we realised that there are no whys and wherefores and there was no help for families of suicide bereavement. There was no one for them to turn to to get the answers. So we kind of started as a very, very small thing where we just have a phone and I was hoping that a few of Michael's friends who might be feeling in the same frame of mind following his death would just contact us and talk to us. And Mikey's line, I know it's undergone quite the transformation from what it was in the beginning to what it is now. Just remind us what it started out as. What kind of a line of support was it? It was really because none of us had an understanding um, of of self-harming and, and depression of the small group that, that, that started. Um, we had to get volunteers to train, to take uh, suicide awareness uh, courses, to take mental health first aid courses. When the word got out about Mikey's Line, it kind of encouraged people to talk about it. It also encouraged more and more people to contact Mikey's Line um, through the tech service. 
Uh, what started off as maybe two or three a week, uh, mushroomed into 20 a week, mushroomed into 30 a week, um, and sometimes it could be as many as 40 a week. And just to remind us, how exactly did that work? This idea that um, someone was feeling a certain way, what happened next with that? Well, basically, one of, one of the, the most successful uh, smoking cessation uh, programs in the world was run by an American called Carr. And his, his theory was that when you wanted a cigarette, that need lasted 13 seconds. And if you got through that need, um, then it was a half hour before you needed another cigarette. You got through that 13 seconds. So I took that into texting and ascertained that the, the, the sheer machinery of formulating a text, sending it and waiting for a reply was that 13 seconds. So then getting into a conversation was the half hour and then the next 13 seconds went by. So if you like, it's quite a simple concept of diversion and distraction. If someone is has in their mind a certain path and we can distract them from that path, divert them from that path simply by talking to them or in this case texting them. And what about the way of thinking in terms of what suicide is and, and how to deal with that? Someone who's feeling like they have no way out and that they're just desperate to get out of that situation and take their own life. What is the approach that's taken that, that might be different to what's done elsewhere? Our personal view, and I'm, I'm not a doctor, and none of us are doctors, none of us have all the answers. We have just found that by taking a human, common-sense approach and listening, the art of listening is something that we don't have anymore, but the art of just sitting there listening to someone who's not a number and has to get out because the next appointment's coming in, is the way forward. When people text us and, and, and say, I'm going to take my own life, we don't say, listen, silly boy, don't. What's your plan? How are you going to do it? You know, have you thought this out? It, you know, what method are you going to use? And we will talk around the, the various methods. So suddenly reality strikes home. What, what was a thought in the back of their head that is growing, it's growing, it's growing, but it's still a personal thought it suddenly hits reality. These people are talking about the pain that I'm going to go through, the pain that my family are going to go through, the, the belief I've got that, that the world's going to be a better place without me and my family are going to be better off. They're not. And we explain that they're not. When you hide suicide away, people don't talk about it, don't recognise and therefore don't know the repercussions and, the, and the, the, the ripple effect that comes out of that, of just how many people, how many people they genuinely love. Nobody takes their own life out of spite. More often than not, they take their own life out of desperation and love, thinking that they're doing someone a favour, you know, family, wife, child, whatever. And because it's all been swept under the carpet before, it's all been kept quiet, you need to describe repercussions and after effects and the ripple effect. 
So Ron Williamson there telling us uh, a little bit about the, the scheme that is going on in the Highlands at the moment where, as you've heard, they sit and listen and on text because that's, you know, and it's, it's aimed at young people and that's what young people do. They text. Um, so if they, if they get a text, then they, they talk to them and say, do you really do you really understand what you're doing? And they, they try and, in a way, um, bring them out and make them, them face up to that. Do you think that is something that should be looked at? for all of Scotland have you been in that situation you know have you have you got to that stage that you think look no dude miss me I'm just a pain in the backside I need to, you know I'd be as well just going or indeed someone in your family you've maybe lost someone in your family through through suicide and you're still looking for answers as as Ron uh, and his family were there as well uh, do let me know oh treble three twenty twenty four oh one other ways you can get in contact you can text six one oh five four start your message with Ali and Twitter hashtag Scotland's Talking. You're listening to Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talking. Scotland's Talking, this is uh, Ali Bally, and good morning to you. Bill Withers there, and lean on me. Now, on Saturday, we'll know who the next leader of the Scottish Labour Party is going to be. Party members have been sending in their votes over the last couple of weeks, and they've had to choose between Glasgow MSP Anna Sarwar, who was on Scotland's Talking, taking your calls a fortnight ago, and Central Scotland MSP Richard Leonard, who is with us today. If you would like to ask Richard a question, or indeed make a point, Here's the number. Contact us anytime now. O treble three twenty twenty four o one. O treble three twenty twenty four o one. Richard was born a Yorkshireman, but he studied politics and economics at the University of Stirling. Before being elected an MSP last year, he had spent twenty years as an industrial organizer with the GMB Union. He's in the studio, ready to take your calls with our political correspondent, Alan Smith. Morning, Alan. Good morning. So, Richard, we have. Just a few days left in this contest, as Ali said, next Saturday we'll know who the, the, the new leader of Scottish Labour is. Why do you think you're the best man for the job? Well, because I think the time has come for real change and I've put forward some uh, radical policies talking about the redistribution of wealth as well as income through uh, the introduction of a wealth tax, which I think is an idea whose time has come. Uh, by getting away from this idea that we can continue to have a low-wage economy and the welfare system is supposed to prop up residual relief for the poor. I think we need a, a, a real quantum leap as far as that's concerned. I also think it's time we started using the Scottish Parliament uh, to develop a manufacturing strategy as part of an industrial policy. Uh, and I think it's well... The time has come for us to start looking more seriously again at, at public ownership. Uh, in particular, I've said that we need to look at uh, the public ownership of the railways again uh, and also uh, the municipal ownership of buses as two uh, key parts of our transport infrastructure. I've come up with ideas too about, uh, for example, the right that I think working people should have a statutory right to be able to buy the enterprise they're working if it's put up for sale uh, or if it's uh, facing closure. So that's about, I guess, a shift of uh, not just wealth but power in, in the economy. Uh, and I've also talked about a Mary Barber law because I think one of the problems that young people especially, but all of us face is a huge escalation in private landlordism uh, and that's led to uh, lots of examples of exploitative uh, rent rises at the same time that people's wages are being depressed. So I think it's about putting forward the idea of the Labour Party, the Scottish Labour Party being transformative again, 
uh, changing people's lives. Uh, and I also think it's about who's got the most credibility and who's been consistent in arguing for those kind of politics uh, for a long time. Uh, and I believe that's me. So we'll get into some of your policy areas there as you're setting out. I know a lot of people want to ask you um, a whole range of them, a whole range of ideas, as you say. Uh, just looking at the campaign, just kind of more generally at, at the moment, um, going into this final week, a lot of people have you down as, as being favourite for this contest. Do you feel like you're the favourite for this? Uh, well, no, I feel it's very close. I mean, the, um, uh, the party uh, membership uh, are casting their votes and have still got five days to do that. Um, certainly at the nomination stage, I received a lot of support from the party's grassroots, uh, from the young membership of the party and from nearly all of the trade unions. And so that's something uh, which I find humbling, uh, but puts a, a, a level of responsibility on my shoulders to, to, to convert those nominations into votes. And, uh, but I don't take that for granted. I mean, I've been in the Labour Party since the 1980s and there have been lots of election contests which I've fought and taken part in where I thought um, it was absolutely uh, sure that Labour would win uh, at times of mass unemployment, for example, and we didn't. So uh, all of my political experience is uh, to take nothing for granted. Whether I'm the favourite or not, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's going to be a very close call. And with this contest, and a lot of people have kind of looked at this contest and, and thought perhaps this has been more of a battle than what we, we thought in advance, perhaps a little personal at times. How do you sum up the campaign? Well, I think uh, by and large it has been a battle of different ideas. Um, there have been, um, I think, if I'm honest with you, Alan, I think the media has tried to uh, make it more of a personal uh, uh, examination, uh, particularly of Anas, if I'm being honest with you. You know, he's come under a lot of scrutiny about his uh, uh, decisions he's taken in his personal life. Uh, I've not got into that because I think... Uh, the prize here is great and the dangers are great as well. I, I, you know, I really think that um, if we're going to see real change in society, the Labour Party is going to deliver it. But we need to make sure the Scottish Labour Party is in a fit state uh, to be able to do that and to win back the confidence of people. Uh, I think I've begun to do that in reaching out to young voters, uh, in bringing back lost Labour voters, including those, for example, who voted yes in the independence referendum and then went on to vote for the SNP. Quite a lot of those people are attracted back by the radical politics uh, that I'm putting forward, but also, if we're honest about it, that Jeremy Corbyn has set his stall out on as well. So so I think um, it's, it's about winning people back on the basis of a Labour Party, which is offering people a vision of a different kind of Scotland, but crucially, offering people hope. Now, just before we, we, we do go to um, our callers, we have lots of questions for you. Looking today... Um, uh, uh, more people who've come out and, and as we've heard over the past few weeks members pledging support for, for yourself or Anis uh, John Lament today coming out supporting uh, Anis Sarwar um, how, how do you respond when you have former leaders of the party saying that perhaps Anis is the man for this job well it's um, it's a democratic contest and uh, Joanne's entitled to to her opinion I respect that and uh, and whatever the outcome of this election is I'll continue to work with all of those uh, MPs, MSPs uh, who've nominated uh, Anas or who are supporting Anas. Uh, actually, uh, I've been delighted with the support I've got, not just from parliamentarians uh, and councillors, but the grassroots of the Labour Party and the trade union movement. Uh, and I'll take uh, some comfort in that because in the end, the mandate that I'm seeking is a mandate from the Labour Party members. 
Uh, it's not a post of being the parliamentary leader of the Scottish uh, Parliamentary Labour Party. It's a post of being the leader of the Scottish Labour Party for all of those members right across the country. Uh, and that's why I see my role, if I'm successful, as being somebody who will lead the party in Parliament, but also lead the party in the country as well. Right, let's go to uh, our questions now. People have been phoning up to, to put things to you. Uh, I think we'll go to uh, Margaret. Margaret's on the line. Good morning, Margaret. Good morning. What's your question for Richard Leonard? Okay, I'm, I'm still dithering who to vote for, and I've been following both candidates. What I'd like to ask Richard is, what is his stance on Britex? It's a very topical all over the country at the moment. What's his stance on Britex and how does that differ from Annis's stance? Stance on Brexit? Yes, Britex, Brexit. Brexit, yeah. Well, uh, I was somebody who campaigned as well as voted to remain. Uh, I believe that uh, politicians have to respect the outcome of referenda. And that's why I think, uh, because in 2014, uh, the people of Scotland voted to stay within the UK and the franchise for the referendum in 2016 on European Union membership was the UK, we need to respect both of those results. So that's my kind of starting point. It's clear from the way that the negotiations in Brussels are going uh, that the Tory hard Brexit deal would be bad for Scotland and bad for the UK. Uh, and the Labour Party's been clear, and this is something which I've been clear on as well, that the, um, the most important thing here is that we protect jobs and the Scottish economy, we protect our manufacturing base, uh, we protect workers' rights and consumer rights uh, and environmental protection. And crucially as well, that we safeguard the rights of those EU citizens who are living and working here. So I will be absolutely uh, uh, hard line on those questions. They are my red lines. And if a deal comes back, negotiated by Boris Johnson, David Davis, Theresa May or whoever, which doesn't meet those tests, then I think it should be voted, the deal should be voted down. Uh, and my sense of it at the moment is that there is growing cross-party and even internal Tory party discontent with the way that things are going. So we could, I think it's entirely plausible that we could reach a situation where a deal comes back uh, 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 from Brussels uh, by those people who I mentioned, which will be voted down by Parliament. I think that could well precipitate a major political crisis, which will in turn lead to a general election. And, and I think that at that point there would be huge support behind Labour being elected into government and Jeremy Corbyn, Keir Starmer uh, leading those negotiations. And I think that will put it in a much better place than we are at present. But they're my red lines. Speaking to Willie Rennie yesterday at the Scottish Lib Dem conference and asking about Brexit and will Brexit actually happen? He thinks it's increasingly unlikely that, that Brexit will happen. Do you think it will? Um, yes, on balance, I do think it will. Uh, I think, though, that uh, the, the nature of our relationship with, for example, the single market will still be strong and positive because I think it needs to be, and I think that's reciprocal. It's in the interests of the remaining EU member states as well as us and our economy that that uh, relationship works and that uh, we have kind of tariff-free uh, uh, access to the single market. So so I think um, I think it will happen in some form. The, the key fact now at this stage is what form that's going to take. Uh, and I'm concerned, as many people are, uh, that there could be either a no-deal uh, uh, proposal or a Tory hard Brexit deal, which would be disastrous for working people across the whole of the UK. Uh, and so I am I'm absolutely determined that the priorities of jobs and the economy, workers' rights, are, are red-line issues that we cannot simply break. Margaret, 
Um, you said you were undecided going into this final week, asking about Brexit. Have you heard enough there? What do you want to hear from Richard? Well, he's basically answered my question, which is great, because I was having dilemmas with um, Annis. There was a couple of things that Annis said that didn't sit too well with me. Firstly, his stance on Brexit, you know, he was going to campaign to, to remain permanently in the single market. And I thought that that differs from um, the Labour UK stance of Keir, Keir um, Starmer. So that was one issue that you've, you've addressed, that you will be going along with um, Labour policy on that. The other thing that really did, um, didn't sit well with me was uh, a means-tested benefits. I, I I came through the 80s as a single parent and I know only too well the hardships that means-tested um, benefits can create. For instance, if you, if you get £10 extra, it affects all your other benefits if it's means-tested. If it's means-tested, you can also be a couple of pennies. And believe me, I have been in that situation where you're over the threshold and you don't receive the benefits. So you can be working next to somebody that... They're getting a £10 extra, but you're not because you're a couple of pence over because it's means tested. But then with universal credit, the thing that bothered me was if you're given £10 extra in one benefit, then other benefits are affected. So it's, it's in effect to me giving £10 with one hand, but taking it off you with the other. For instance, housing benefit, if you get £10 extra as an extra benefit, as Anna has said, this could be deducted from your housing benefit, so you're not winning either way. Richard, um, where do you stand then on, on the means testing <clears throat> there? I mean, how I know you've got a lot of policy in there about um, the welfare state of, of the UK. How, how do you change things? How, how do you keep that balance between um, um, affording all of this, for example? Well, the Scottish Parliament now has powers to top up benefits. Uh, and uh, just this week, we voted through a Child Poverty Act. And uh, contained in that act uh, was an amendment put through um, and voted uh, and agreed by the Parliament that that should include the right to top up child benefit. Uh, that's a campaign which has been backed uh, by the Give Me Five campaign, by the Child Poverty Action Group, by the Poverty Alliance, by the churches... The Scottish TUC Women's Conference backed that position recently. And that's my position. I think we should be topping up universal child benefit. And the reason for that is because uh, means testing has some of the consequences that Margaret uh, has described, but means testing is also uh, notorious uh, for not reaching all of those people who need it because take-up is considerably less on a means-tested benefit than it is on a universal benefit. So I am absolutely clear. And not least as well in a situation where 70% of children living in poverty live in households where at least one adult is working. So we're, we're describing a situation where people's incomes may vary, fluctuate, and the, a tax credit system or a means-tested system uh, fluctuates as well. And people like the Child Poverty Action Group say it's, the flu it's those fluctuations in those tax credits which lead people to, to find recourse to food banks. Uh, people don't end up in food banks because of the, a problem with the child benefit because the child benefit is automatically paid. It, it, it's paid uh, also, incidentally, uh, uh, primarily uh, to the mother in the relationship. Uh, the whole uh, universal credit system is paid to one nominal figure in a household and invariably that turns out to be the man. So uh, there are all kinds of reasons why I think child benefit is the best route for us to go down. OK, let's go back to the phones and Heather. Good morning, Heather. Good morning. What's your question for Richard Leonard? Morning, Richard. Morning, Heather. 
I'm a disabled person who's been waiting three years for a suitable house, um, which means that a lot of the time I'm trapped within the house. Um, there are every politician, whatever their political allegiance, promises to build more houses. What makes your promise to make thousands of houses actually achievable and a good percentage of those to be uh, barrier-free and fully accessible for disabled people? Well, thanks very much for that question. I mean, yeah, I have said, um, probably along with a line of politicians, that I do think we need to invest considerably more in social housing, and in that I include council housing. Uh, and that means looking at the level of financial support that's available uh, to subsidise the building of, of, those, um, of, of those houses and homes. Um, I also think it's absolutely clear that one of the things that we need to do as a society is understand... Uh, the demographic changes, uh, the fact that uh, a, a welcome fact is that people are living longer and so that more and more people are likely to be in a situation where they will need adapted accommodation and we need to invest um, uh, accordingly. Uh, and so I would like to see a quota of the 12,000 social houses which I've called for to be built annually, I would like to see a quarter of those uh, being uh, adapted housing that allow people to live independently because uh, people's dignity in the end should be the, uh, the thing that drives our politics uh, and far too often people like you are having to wait uh, to get their property adapted, uh, to get doors widened, uh, to get do even simple things like door handles changed uh, as well as making sure that they are accessible. I have some personal experience um, of this. Uh, um, my wife's uh, mother and father uh, had to have an adapted accommodation in uh, in Glasgow, uh, and to be fair to the GHA, they responded quickly and moved them from a top level to a bottom level flat uh, and provided uh, suitable adaptation. So um, I can speak from personal experience to say uh, there are good examples out there, but I know that there are a lot of people who are waiting. And the key thing for me is uh, this is an opportunity that we've got. If we're building new houses, what better time could there be uh, to build new houses that take into account uh, that the demands of the population are not uh, monochrome, uh, they're multiple, and people have got different demands and different needs, and we need to reflect that in the kind of accommodation that we invest in. And does that give you an answer to your question, Heather? Yes and no. Yes and no. Um, do you not find, Richard, that a lot of the companies that are building houses, including council houses, um, they take it for granted that an adapted house needs to be for someone that lives on their own or an elderly couple? only need one bedroom. We've had a lot of service people come back um, who've needed adapted houses and they have young families. So they need three and four bedrooms. Um, I contacted a local housing association who were building brand new houses to ask how many adapted houses they had. And they were all for just one bedroom. Lots of families need them now because people are being disabled and it's not just for the elderly. Yeah, I know. No, 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 that's absolutely right. And we and we know from um, figures that have been released, even just very recently, that there are high uh, levels of people uh, who are incapacitated and uh, and need adaptation. And and look, today's Remembrance Sunday, and you make the important point about service personnel uh, returning uh, uh, back into civilian life. We've got a society. We've got a societal responsibility to those people and to all people to make sure that the accommodation that we're providing, the homes that we're building, uh, the houses that we're adapting, meet the needs of all people. And sometimes, you know, uh, the systems that we've had have been a bit bureaucratic and slow to react, and we need to be better 
at getting uh, change. We need to be better at uh, adapting. We need to be better at understanding that the demands of people may be changing and we need to reflect that in the kind of accommodation that we're providing and the kind of accommodation that we're building. And certainly uh, in this call that I've made for 12,000 new social homes in Scotland to be built, uh, that needs to be a central part of that approach. Heather, thank you very much indeed for your call. We'll take a quick break, but if you have a question you would like to put to Richard Leonard, give us a call now. 0333 2020 401. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. On Saturday, we'll know who the next leader of Scottish Labour is going to be. One of the contestants is with us at the moment, Central Scotland MSP Richard Leonard. He's taking your calls. Let's go to Raymond, first of all. Raymond, you're through to, to Richard. What's your point, please? Uh, my point, Ali, uh, the question I'd like to ask Richard is, how do we build a movement for real, lasting, transformative change that transfers wealth and power from the idle rich to working people and their families? Ah, um, well, there is um, uh, certainly, in my view, clear evidence that there is a bit of momentum behind that already. I, I think that there is a growing hunger out there amongst uh, people right across Scotland that things can't go on as they are, uh, that business as usual is no longer acceptable. And so I think that um, one of the reasons why people became engaged uh, with the Labour Party in the June general election uh, but actually in Scotland, I think the Scottish Labour Party missed the opportunity to capitalise on it, was because uh, here there was a principal leader in the shape of Jeremy Corbyn who was advocating uh, a radical uh, manifesto uh, which included extending public ownership, uh, which included ending austerity, which included uh, transferring uh, not just wealth but power uh, from the few to the many. And I think that's a very engaging political agenda uh, which is already, in my experience during the course of this campaign, reaching out to young people, reaching out, as I mentioned earlier, to those people who are maybe lost Labour voters. And so it's those kind of things that I think, it's the political ideas which are in the first instance starting to attract people back to the Labour Party, that we are seen as the party of change, that we are seen as the party of hope, and increasingly are seen as a credible vehicle for realising that hope. So, so it's the ideas, first of all, but there needs to be organisation behind it. And one of the things which I've said is that um, um, there have been numerous leaders of the Scottish Labour Party over the last 20 years, uh, but nobody has come from a trade union background in the way that I have, and I do. Uh, and I do see that as an asset upon which we can build and start to reforge the alliance between the Labour Party and working people, especially, but not exclusively, but especially through the trade union movement. So it's about building that movement for real change through all of those progressive elements in society that simply don't accept uh, that it's right that the top 1% in Scotland today, uh, the richest top 1% in Scotland today, own more personal wealth than, than the entire bottom 50%, the poorest 50% put mm -hmm. together. That's not the kind of society that I, I think many people in Scotland want to live in. And it's about how we can change that and who's going to change that. And my view is it will only ever be the Labour Party, a, a party built on working people that will bring about the kind of transformative change that I think we need. You say there is already this movement towards the idea of, of for the many under under Jeremy Corbyn. What kind of part do you think he's got to play in all of this, this contest in Scotland? Because people will say, well, you're his closest ally in this contest and perhaps that gives you the edge. Well, um, I have said on a number of occasions that I'm a bit too long in the tooth to be a Corbynista. And I've been, you know, I've been around the Labour Party since the early 1980s, the Scottish Labour Party since the early 1980s. 
and um, um, I, I therefore don't consider myself to be a part of a new movement behind Jeremy Corbyn. My ideas have been pretty steady uh, throughout, and I suppose in that sense there is a degree of uh, parallel, if I dare say it, uh, with uh, Jeremy Corbyn in the sense that I have been consistent. There are times, there are times over the past 30 years where my politics have been off message or out of fashion, but I've stuck to them because I think those values, those principles were important. Uh, and actually now they are coming back to the fore in the Labour Party and the kind of reasons I joined the Labour Party in the first place are, are really now driving the agenda of the Labour Party and therefore driving the agenda of politics in Scotland. And I think uh, we need somebody leading the Labour Party that is in tune with that uh, and, uh, and I think that I can bring that to the job. OK, back to the phones and Dorothy's with us. Good morning, Dorothy. Good morning. What's your um, question for Richard Leonard? OK. Um, Richard, we've heard a lot of brave women speaking out recently about the sexual harassment and abuse they faced in public life um, and, and beyond. What, what are your proposals to end this culture within the Labour Party and in public life in general? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the people who have spoken out, um, in my view, have been very courageous to speak out um, because um, I don't think we're talking here simply about isolated incidents of bad apples. I think we're talking about a problem with the system as a whole and the culture as a whole, which we need to, uh, which we need to sort out. And uh, uh, my view is that it's not limited to the Labour Party, but it does, uh, uh, it does affect the Labour Party, and we need to have the responsibility to deal with that. And so uh, my view is it's no, it's no longer acceptable to believe uh, that the Labour Party uh, can simply sort out internally uh, these kind of charges which have been uh, brought by people. We need to have, in my view, an independent uh, system. So I've uh, called for somebody... Uh, outside of the representative structures of the Labour Party to be appointed to lead um, uh, the drawing up both of protocols but also then to um, uh, take up complaints uh, which are raised in an independent way so that there is no conflict of interest and no, or no perceived conflict of interest. And I think there are people out there who would fit the bill, people of standing in the equalities movement, people who've got a record uh, in this whole area who are maybe sympathetic to the Labour Party, may not be Labour Party members, certainly not people who are active or, or in the hierarchy of the Labour Party. It needs to be separate from the Labour Party to give people confidence again that any complaints they deal with, uh, that they raise, will be dealt with uh, sensitively, sympathetically, uh, and they won't feel, which appears to be uh, what women in the Labour Party, for example, have been telling me over the last week or so, a feeling that they will not be believed or they will not be supported or in the end people will rally around the person against whom the accusation is made. So I think we need to be clear that we need to go down an independent route uh, and, uh, and um, uh, understand that the Labour Party, by accounts that have been already given and by ones that may come out in the future, the Labour Party needs to get its house in order. We've seen moves in Holyrood over the past couple of weeks since these claims have started to be made public with the with the phone line and its own um, anonymous survey. Um Questions today from from Patrick Harvey, who thinks actually Holyrood, the Parliament itself, should have more powers to deal with a subject like this. One of the ideas he puts forward is 
that um, they, they should have the power to remove an MSP salary for a full term if they're found guilty of gross misconduct. Does Parliament itself need more powers to deal with a subject like this? Well, it's an interesting idea that Patrick's floated. Uh, I mean, my instinct would be that it should be up to the electorate uh, to remove and or suspend uh, elected representatives because in the end... Uh, MSPs are not accountable to the Parliament, first and foremost. They're accountable to the people that send them there. Their, their power is borrowed from the people, uh, not lent from the Parliament. So, so my predisposition would be to look at whether there are trigger mechanisms or other routes uh, that could be used in the Scottish parliamentary context which would allow uh, elected MSPs to be brought to book by the electorate who sent them there. OK, back to the calls, and it's Brian. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. What's your question for Richard Leonard? Um, my question is, um, does, does he support Trident renewal? Um, I, I live quite close to um, Helmsborough, and I'm an ex-submariner, and I know exactly um, what it's like to work around this area. I've young kids down in there, and, and I'm not happy that Labour Party stands in the UK, even though in Scotland they, they are against Trident, but we have to bow to Westminster to keep the Trident submarines close to my home. Richard, where do you stand on this issue? Well, I've been a long-time member of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, uh, So, uh, and I've, I've written down the years uh, about um, the case against Trident. Um, it, it's absolutely imperative that as part of any uh, discussion around this, we understand the need to protect uh, employment and income of those people whose jobs are tied up uh, in the Trident programme, whether that's in the manufacture and production of it or whether it's in the operation of it. So we need to make a transition in such a way uh, that uh, people's uh, the, the victims of this are not the people who, who are dependent for their employment on it. But I think there's a huge moral imperative here. I do not think that we can justify, uh, not just economically, I don't think we can justify morally the renewal of the Trident uh, nuclear weapons system. This has been a, a, an issue of confusion, some would say, for the Labour Party, considering there are so many differing positions within people with, with, with people within the party. Do you think you need to get on the same page that the parties north and south of the border need to have the same message on this? Well, um, the, the Scottish Labour Party um, held a debate uh, at which uh, a, a decision was taken that our view would be uh, to oppose the replacement of Trident. Um, the UK Labour manifesto didn't entirely reflect that. My job, if I'm elected as the leader of the Scottish Labour Party, would be, for, would be to fight for the Scottish Labour Party's position, and that's what I would do. Brian, is that enough from you? What do you want to hear from Richard? No, I want more than that. I, I think it's such a big issue that they're very, he's very weak on it, and the same as Corbyn is. I it's such a big issue. I can't understand... Uh, why um, the, Labour, the, the, the leader of the Labour Party in Scotland, the leader or the, the one who, who might be, and the leader of the Labour Party in the UK still say, or oh, it's okay to have, it's okay um, to be against it, but it, it doesn't seem to me that they're too bothered, as they're too bothered about. Another problem I've got is the rotten submarine house, a submarine I used to serve on, is still in the side, rotting away with nuclear reactors, there's seven of them there, and still they are doing nothing about it. But they're okay with it. Basically, to me, he's answering to the British government, and I'm not happy with it. I'm not happy with nuclear weapons along the road. As I say, I used to serve on them, and I know what it's like. We'll give Richard a chance, Brian, we'll give Richard a chance to just respond to what you said there. Oh, we're against it, but we'll go along with it. It's such a big issue. 
for many people. Right, and it's not a reasonable answer to just say, oh, but that's the way it is. You know what I mean? You've got to be a wee bit more stronger than that. If it's got, even Scottish Labour against it, but you're just agreeing what Westminster wants. Not OK, Brian, enough, Brian we'll give Richard a chance to, to respond to what you've had to say there. Yeah, well, nuclear safety is one of the issues and one of the reasons why I am uh, opposed to the continuation of the nuclear weapons programme. Uh, the fact that holes are lying in Recife uh, may be a reflection of the fact that that's where the, they were maintained uh, and uh, in some cases um, uh, were worked on and built. So, so I, don't think, I don't think it's good enough to say we can just ship all our... Uh, 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 retired nuclear submarines down to Devonport or somewhere. I think we need to take some responsibility uh, in Scotland uh, for dealing with nuclear safety. But I hope that I have been absolutely clear. And it's not an entirely popular view to stay in all parts of the Labour movement. But I have been clear that I'm a long-standing member of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. I oppose Trident Renewal, uh, not just on economic, but also on moral grounds. OK, let's go to Jimmy. Jimmy, what's your point this morning? Good uh, morning. Yeah, me Labour turned its back on the working class uh, during the Blair years. Let me leave people like me politically homeless. Can Richard guarantee that under his leadership, Scottish Labour will represent the working class again? I mean, we've had leaders in Scotland and comedians, to be perfectly honest. We, we need working class leadership. OK, Jimmy... Richard. Well, yeah, Jimmy, my, um, my entire uh, working life uh, has been spent inside the Scottish Labour and Trade Union movement. Um, I was uh, privileged uh, to represent uh, workers um, 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 who were members of the GMB Trade Union, many of them low-paid women workers who were battling to make ends meet week in, week out. Uh, I take heart from the fact that 11 out of 12 uh, affiliated trade unions to the Labour Party are backing me. Uh, I think that's a signal that people understand that what I offer is something a bit different. It is a reconnection with the trade union movement and through the trade union movement into uh, working people. So I think that um, what I'm offering uh, is a different background, a different experience, an understanding of what life is like uh, for working people. And I think that, um, you know, if you look at my record uh, over the past 25 years, it's been fighting against uh, blacklisting construction companies. It's been fighting for equal pay for low-paid women workers. It's about getting justice for workers uh, who are facing um, uh, uh, attacks on their terms and conditions by their employers. It's been about securing investment and avoiding redundancies. So it's been about understanding that actually in society uh, there are competing forces of labour and capital, uh, and I will absolutely be on the side of labour. So we just have the last few days of this campaign. Uh, the winner is announced next Saturday. Will it be Richard Leonard? Will it be Anna Sawa, Richard Leonard? If you do become the, 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 the next leader of Scottish Labour, what's your first job? Well, my first job will be to um, uh, reach out a hand of uh, friendship uh, to Anas um, if he is uh, defeated by me. Uh, it will then be to look at how we can build up not just unity inside the Scottish Labour Party and the wider Labour and Trade Union movement in Scotland, uh, but how we can build up a unity of purpose. Because a simple call for unity is not sufficient. We need to have a shared goal. And again, it's not sufficient to say the shared goal is winning the Scottish Parliament elections in 2021. The shared goal should be about... How can we build a movement for real change? How can we make the Labour Party the relevant uh, political party in Scotland again that stands for change, that people have got a belief in again? And one of the things which I want to instil amongst uh, Labour Party members is 
let's get back a sense of belief in ourselves again. I mean, we fought the, the, the June general election with the prospectus of saying we want to form a strong opposition. If we don't believe in ourselves in the Labour Party, why should we expect anybody else to believe in us and to vote for us? So we need to win back our self-respect, we need to win back our self-belief, and we need to get back on the front foot, and that's what I would intend to do in leading the Scottish Labour Party. So there we go, you've had your chance to question Richard Leonard on his policies, on his beliefs ahead of the winner being announced next week. Just a few days left to go in the voting in this contest, but next Saturday, next Saturday we'll know, is it Anna Sawar or is it Richard Leonard who'll be the next leader of Scottish Labour? Thank you very much indeed, our political correspondent Alan Smith and of course uh, to Richard Leonard as well. And now on Scotland's Talking, time for any other business. Yeah, not a lot of time for any other business today. But uh, one that I wanted to mention was, it was actually uh, brought up last week, and I didn't get around to it, so my apologies to the gentleman who raised it. He said he wanted to know if our listeners thought Coronation Street had lost the plot and was getting too brutal. And then after that, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, uh, in one of the papers I read that TV legend Michael Parkinson has slammed Coronation Street's brutal storylines, claiming they make him physically recoil. So, in your opinion, has Coronation Street lost it? Let me know. O Travel 3 2020 401. And our city of Edinburgh, the council who stole Christmas. Officials in the capital have come up with a plan to save the planet and money by putting up fewer Christmas trees. Instead of using fir trees, they were putting lights and decorations on ordinary trees in Haymarket, Tollcross, Portobello, and Drylaw. They say it means there will be 61 decorated trees in the city this year compared to 44. So, does it matter or not that they're not Christmas tree shaped? Has your local council been cutting back on Christmas to save money? Many of them have. In fact, some towns and villages have to raise the money themselves uh, because the council can't afford to do it. So, is there anything wrong with what Edinburgh Council's agreeing to do here? Is, is it what you expect from the capital city of Scotland? You know, people coming to visit, going to the Edinburgh Christmas markets, and you look and they're just putting on uh, well, little fairy lights around. So, do you think Christmas decorations are a waste of money? when there are other things and other cuts being made. O treble three twenty twenty four oh one. Or any other subject of course. Susan, hi there, how are you doing? Hello. Hello. Fine, thank you. Good, good. What's your point? Um I just like to say that I'm very disappointed at some of the negative comments that have been made um, during the Labour contest. Right, okay. In what in, in what way? Well, just some of the articles that have been in the press and um, taking away from the actual policies that both candidates have been putting forward. Mm-hmm. And I think the, ca- the campaign, the contest should have been about the policies and not negative comments. Is that up to the candidates to try and get their policies through? Because, you know, well, I think, go on. Well, I think both candidates seem to be and that um, some of the negative comments seem to be coming from journalists. And mm-hmm. I've seen comments from people who don't even have a vote. Right, yeah, I mean, even Richard Leonard made the point right at the beginning that he thought, you know, the media were, were causing a lot of the, um, the the negative side of things, I suppose. Yes, I think so. Um, I've been very disappointed by that. So what would you have then? I mean, surely the media in general have been reporting on what has actually been going on. Well, yes, I think to a certain extent, but there's also been, you know, spinning um, stories that I don't think are c- completely accurate. I mean, I happen to be a member of Southside CLP, 
And I think the comments in the Herald about that were disgraceful. Right. So the media uh, have a lot to answer for as far as you're concerned? I think so, yes. OK, thank you very much indeed for your call. Uh, thanks for that. Um, Anne Ferguson's next. Any other business? And what you want to talk about? Uh, how Corey has lost the plot. Right. What do you think? Oh, it's not an enjoyable programme anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I, 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 I like soaps. You know, I, I hold my hands up. I do sit down and do enjoy certain soaps, not them all. Don't like EastEnders, but you know, Corey would probably rank I up there. I agree with you about EastEnders. <laughs> yeah, but this last few months with feeling and all that, it's just been going on and on and on, and just uh, just getting to the ridiculous, really, is it? Totally. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's. Totally lost the plot. It's not an enjoyable programme anymore. Totally agree with you. And they should give us a scripts to write, shouldn't they? Yes. You, you, <laughs> you and I will cope with it well. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Thanks very Ali. much. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. Graeme Hart's in our growth. Graeme, any other business? What do you want to talk about? About the bins. The bins? OK. Yeah, they're, they're supposed to be working on the shelf, going on shelves. At right. night. Right. They'll never uh, do that. Why? Well, making a noise with the bins at, uh, when you're sleeping. Would Tough. you like anybody to come up with your bins in the bed? Well, it depends what time you go to your bed and you're sleeping, doesn't it? I mean, they're not going to be coming round at back at midnight and stuff. You know, they, they, they are. They are. <sighs> Listen, they've already tried this in Fife, and it is... It is a bit unusual, if you're not used to seeing it, it's a bit unusual to see bin lorries going around in the evenings, late at night, 10 o'clock-ish, collecting bins. I agree, it is unusual, but it's, well, it seems to work. Well, I used to work with the council alley mm-hmm. in Arbroad, and I retired. And your point is? Well, you, you, uh, just, you just don't think it'll work? No. OK, well, as I say, we're asking our councils and councillors to, you know, an awful lot of them. I really do think that, you know, because we're asking, you know, you're getting less money yet they, from, from central government, yet they, they, the people in the area, wherever you are in Scotland, expect more from their council, more and more and more. And yet when they come up with something and say, right, if we can... Extend the bins, for instance. And I remember the uh, when it was happening in Fife. Oh, this would never work, and it seems to be happily working away. Unless, of course, you you know different and you're in Fife. That's where I'm going to have to leave it. I'm afraid we have run out of time. Thanks, Graham, for that last one. Um, here's one from Jim. Quite a few messages on social media that I'm not going to get to, so apologies for that. Surely we need Trident due to North Korea and Mr. Trump. Um, that's from Jim. Thank you very much indeed, Jim. And one that says, I think with Edinburgh being the capital, it would be nice to see them making an effort with Christmas trees. I know they used to have one at the top of the mound. Not sure if they still do. So, yeah, yeah they're still making an effort. They're still putting lights up. Still looks nice when you walk through it. Thank you very much indeed for calling today on Scotland's Talking. It's been a busy programme. I shall be back again next Sunday morning to do exactly the same from 10 till 12. Tomorrow, the Ali Bally Show from 10 through until 2. Take care. Bye-bye.